I'm excited to be with you as always and excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is how good God is. Probably the best subject we can talk about. I want to start with a quote, which I know is not the most gripping way to start any kind of presentation. But as I was studying for this message, I came across this quote relating to the passage we're going to look at. And I just wanted to share it with you. It says, how right life is when theology becomes doxology. Now, I know maybe about 5% of you are like, oh, that's really good. I got to write that down. And the rest of you are thinking, I know that means something, but I have no idea what it means. So let me just tell you why I like this quote. Everybody in this room has a theology. Everybody in this room is a theologian. In fact, every human being who's ever lived, because all theology means is my belief about God. And even if you're wrong, you have a theology. Even if you believe God doesn't exist, which means you're wrong, you have a theology. Even if you're a little kid and your idea of God is an old man in the sky with a long white beard, you're a theologian. But when your theology is true, when you believe, when you see God for who He really is, it leads to doxology. Doxology is that Greek word that means words of praise, words of glory. When you know the truth about God, it fills you with joy. And that joy bubbles up inside of you and you can't keep it in anymore and you just have to express it. And that expression is, is praise. That expression is worship. That expression is glory to God. And, and the irony is, the beautiful irony is, when you express praise to God, whether you're singing like we did just a minute ago and we, do, we will in about 30 minutes again, or whether you're just talking to a neighbor, when you're praising God, you become even more joyful. So it's a beautiful cycle. Your joy just spirals upward. Now we believe at First Baptist, we believe that in order to be a disciple, you really need to do two, two, three things. You need to connect with God in worship. You need to grow every day in Christ-like qualities. And, and that's why we have life groups. So you can spend time together and, and inspire one another, encourage one another to growth. And you need to reach other people with His love. Use your gifts. Use your relationships to advance uh, the gospel in people's lives. And when you're doing those things, growing, connecting, growing, and reaching, you're becoming the person God created you to be. So this series, this First part of the year is about, about that first section, that first idea of connecting with God in worship. And some of you, when you hear that, immediately you want to say, wait a second, Jeff, you need to know about me. I just never have been able to connect with God in worship. I come to church because somebody invited me or because I know I should be there, but I, frankly, I just kind of have to fight through it. I don't really get anything out of it emotionally, intellectually. I just kind of spend my time until it's over. It, it's kind of boring. And I want to talk to you if that's the case. To, this message is for you. It's also for the person who says, I would love to be able to worship God, but right now I'm struggling in my faith. The things I see in the world around me, the things I see happening to people who love me, maybe the things that are happening to me that cause me to doubt and to question what I believe about God and how can I worship when I'm really not sure who God is. And others are struggling with fear or with grief. You've lost a loved one. You've experienced a time of personal tragedy or you're experiencing real personal stress. How can you praise God when you're afraid, when you're sorrowful? And so this message is for you if you're in any of those positions. See, the quote that I read to you from Kent Hughes, he, he, he writes that about the section that we're about to read. And it's out of the book of Romans, Romans 11. If you've ever read Romans, Romans is... Uh, the greatest work of theology that's ever been done, I think. It's Paul telling us everything we need to know about God and how to get to God. And he starts by saying, you are lost. I mean, for three chapters, he tells us, we are lost. Whether you're rich or poor, old or young, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. You cannot get to God. And then the rest of that section is, 
God has done a miracle. He has made a way where there is no way. He has found a way to get us to God through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. The miracle is that God took our place in the form of Christ. And then he gets to chapters 9 through 11, and he starts dealing with some really complicated stuff where he, he answers questions like, well, if, Jewish, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but the Jews have rejected him, does that mean God's plan has failed? Does that mean that, God, that the Gentiles are God's plan B? And he deals with all these really complicated issues. And then at the end of chapter 11, it's like Paul is a mountain climber who has scaled the highest, steepest mountain on earth. And he stands at the top of the peak and he looks around at all the beauty he can survey and he just begins to sing because he's so full of joy at all this stuff he's been explaining to us. And his song, as it were, his doxology, is what we're going to study today. Uh, Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So my goal today is for the bored person to get excited. My goal today is for the fearful person to experience peace, to know that everything's going to be all right, for the, the doubter to feel certainty, and for the grieving person to experience joy, and for all of us to rejoice. In just a little while, we're going to sing again, and I want my goal, my hope is that every one of us would sing like we've never sung before, not just because there are words on a screen and because everyone else is singing, but because you just can't hold it in anymore because God is so good. So I want to walk through these words because they show us images of God, an idea of God that most of us never see. And the first is that first phrase, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There's knowledge and then there's wisdom. Those are two different things. One thing I've learned, because I've known a lot of people in my time, lived in a lot of places, everybody is an expert on something. You can be highly educated, have a genius level IQ, you can be someone who has no education at all, but you know stuff about something that other people don't. And maybe for you it's quantum mechanics, or maybe it's physics, or maybe it's engineering, or maybe it's medicine, or maybe it's uh, how to know when your kids need to go to bed. How to know when, you're, when your son is is getting sick or he's just cranky. Uh, maybe it's how to hit a golf ball. Maybe it's how to grill a steak. Maybe it's how to level up in, in a Call of Duty, right? You, th you can tell I have a, a gamer son. You know, so everybody knows stuff about something. That's knowledge. The thing about God is he knows everything about everything. He is an expert on every subject. There's nothing that stumps him. But he doesn't just have knowledge, he also has wisdom. Wisdom is different because it's not just information. Wisdom is the ability to choose the right path. I, I love this, this analogy. I, never, I didn't come up with it, but I use it a lot. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in fruit salad. Think about the movie uh, Jurassic Park. I know for some of you here in these front two rows is before you were born, but still, uh, you know, the story of these incredible scientists who come up with the ability to, to bring dinosaurs back to life, and then immediately they start eating people. And Jeff Goldblum's character says, you know, they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they never stopped to think if they should. What he's saying is it's dangerous to have knowledge without wisdom, and God has both. God not only knows everything, he never makes a mistake. God always chooses the right path and always knows the right path for you to choose. 
If God's knowledge and wisdom could be stored in a big tanker, and you stood at the top of that and you dropped a lit torch into the hole, you could just watch that torch fall until it was gone from your vision. You couldn't even see it anymore and you still wouldn't hear it hit the bottom. God's wisdom and his knowledge are infinite. But not only that, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments. God is the only judge. In the end, he's the only one whose opinion matters. And in fact, he is the one who will render an opinion, a judgment on your life. Whether you're a billionaire or a beggar, every single one of us has two things in common. We were all made by him and we will all be judged by him. And as Americans, we have a hard time with that because we're very individualistic. We've never been, there's never been a more individualistic people than Americans today. We think everything is about us. And we have a hard time admitting someday at the end of the story, someone else is going to have, uh, have their say, the ultimate say, on whether we lived a good life or not. But the ancient people didn't have a problem with that. They understood. If God is God and we're not, of course, he gets the final say. What the ancient people had a hard time with, and what, frankly, some of us should have a hard time with, is understanding that God's severest judgment was the judgment he rendered upon himself at the cross. Because at the cross, and the reason why we can be saved, is that Jesus came, God in human flesh, and all the judgment that all of us have earned was poured out upon him. That was his plan. That was his way of rescuing us. And that does not make sense. That is a judgment that is unsearchable. You can study it. You can sing about it. You can thank God for it. But to the end of your days, you will have to admit, I still don't understand why God would make that choice. But his judgments are unsearchable. And how unscrutable his ways. Inscrutable. That's an interesting word. I bet you haven't used it all day, have you? But it means, this is the dictionary definition, impossible to understand or interpret. So hear me say this. I am a quote-unquote religious expert because somebody decided I was a long time ago. I am here to tell you most of the things God does take us by surprise. When you ever get to the point where you think, I've got God figured out, I know the direction he's taking my life, this is what's going to happen next year and next decade and next 20 years, and God says, yeah, not really. Every time we think we have God figured out, we find out we're wrong because God's ways are different than our ways. They are inscrutable. And you know what? Sometimes that can be heartbreaking because you can think you know the direction your life is headed and God takes your life in a completely different direction. You can think, I'm praying for this thing and I'm, I know that it's something good and so I know God's gonna give me this thing, this good thing that I'm praying for and then it doesn't come to pass and that can be heartbreaking. But God always knows. God's ways are inscrutable, but they're always right. When I was, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, some of you don't know this, I had no thought of being a pastor at all. I did not want to go into the ministry. That wasn't my plan. In fact, if I'd had my way when I was that age, today I would be announcing, I'd be broadcasting one of the NFL games today, one of the playoff games, or I'd be on SportsCenter tonight. That's what I wanted to do. And I went to school. I got the education. I got the experience. I, I, I did some radio work. I was an intern at Channel 13. Uh, and then about a month before graduation and before Carrie and I were going to get married, because we were getting married literally the week after graduation, I still didn't have a paying job in my chosen field. And I was praying hard, Lord, I want to provide well for my wife. Uh, I want to I you know, do great things, so please provide me with a job in this business. 
And then, like I said, about a month before graduation, I hear that there's a job opening at Channel 25 in Victoria, Texas. They were looking for a weekend sports anchor. Now, some of you don't even know that Victoria has TV, but they do. And I grew up 30 minutes from there, and I thought, this is perfect. This is, this is what I've been praying for. And I sent them my resume tape with all my broadcasty type stuff. And they called back and said, we want to interview you. And I said, Lord, this is it. Thank you. Thank you for setting this up. This is perfect. I'll, I'll be right down the road from my parents, newly married, getting into this field. Won't make much money, but it's just a start. We went, I went to the interview. I had to skip a whole day of school. Don't recommend this, children. But I had to skip a whole day of school to go interview with the general manager of KVU-TV in Victoria. And, and I could tell immediately that he liked me. I could tell I am right for this job. He knew that I knew all those schools in that area and, and who the rivalries are and all the history. And I, I, would, I would be perfect for that job. And he put me in front of a camera and had me read off of a teleprompter so you could see how that went. And at the end of it, I, I just knew that I'd nailed it. And this is before cell phones. So as soon as I got done, I got on a payphone. Those things existed. And I called my dorm and talked to my roommate. And I said, hey, Carrie should be getting out of class soon. Would you go meet her and tell her that Jeff said, I got the job. And I got in the car and I drove back to Houston and I was just on cloud nine. I felt like a million bucks. And then three days later, I got a call from that general manager saying, hey, um, enjoyed the interview, but we want somebody who has actual on-air experience, so we're going to go in a different direction. And that was devastating, because then I didn't know what God was up to. And a month later, we're married, and I'm working a $15,000 a year job in a warehouse, and I really didn't know what God was up to. But then a few months later, I'm laying awake in the middle of the night, understanding for the first time in my life, God is calling me into full-time ministry. And that's a whole other story I'll tell you another time, but I'll tell you two things. Number one, I have never once regretted choosing the path that God chose for me instead of going my own way. Not once, not even a little bit. But number two, if God had given me that job I prayed and prayed and prayed for, I don't know that I would have heard his call. And I don't know where I'd be today. So God's ways are inscrutable, but they're always right. Your story is going to be very different than my story. They always are. But there will be times when things don't go the way you want them to. Despite your prayers and despite your best efforts. And you just need to understand, God knows what he's doing. You can trust him. And then it says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 13. Nobody gives God advice. Nobody consults with God. He doesn't ask for our opinions. He knows, and we don't. I want you to imagine you have a friend who has a brain abnormality that's going to kill him unless he gets this very, very detailed and complicated brain surgery. Now imagine you love your friend, and so uh, you find out that the, the world's greatest brain surgeon is up in the Northeast, and, and you know, she sees all kinds of people, uh, you know, very, very famous people and wealthy people. Well, you raise hundreds of thousands of dollars so your friend can see this person. You talk to powerful people, your congressman, your senator, and you pull the strings so that this person gives your friend an appointment. 
And together the two of you fly up to Boston and you, you meet with this woman in her office and she walks you through what the surgery is going to be like. And she says, okay, the day before, here's what I want you to do. And the night before, I want you to stop eating or drinking at midnight. And you're going to get there at 5.30 in the morning. And, and here's what I'm going to do. And she pulls out a, a model of the brain and she shows where she's going to cut and what things she's going to do. And imagine your friend raises his hand and says, excuse me, ma'am. Uh, no disrespect or anything, but uh, this is my body, so I think I should be able to make the decisions for myself, and I'm just here to tell you that I'm going to wake up at 8 in the morning, and I'm going to have a breakfast of steak and eggs, and, uh, and maybe a donut, and then I will call you when I get to the hospital, and you come when I'm ready. And by the way, it's my brain, and here's where I want you to cut, and here's what I want you to remove. Now, you would be ready to kill your friend. You'd say, don't you understand, you fool? If you don't do what she says, you could die on the table. If she actually does what you say, you could end up blind or paralyzed or you know, mentally compromised. Actually, I think you're mentally compromised now, the way you're behaving. We need to understand that God is God and we're not. That means he doesn't need our advice. We're not his counselors. We're not his consultants. And when we ignore his direct command, we're like a person who doesn't listen to his doctor's counsel. We're worse because even doctors with all their knowledge are fallible. God is not. So when we ignore the commands of Scripture, and you all know, if we were to stand up and give honest testimony, we could all say, I try my best to follow the commands of God except these over here. We all have those commands that we just say, eh, not for me. And God says, don't you understand I created those commands for your good? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't put these commands in my word because I'm trying to make your life harder. It's not some arbitrary way of me deciding who's good and who's bad. I love you and I know more than you. And so these are the commands that tell you how to live so you can avoid pain and trial and trauma. And when we get angry with God because life doesn't go the way we want it to, it's as if we're giving him orders. We're expecting him to obey our will instead of the other way around. In reality, and guys, this is going to be hard for you, but it's really helpful if you admit this is true. In reality, if God did everything we asked him to in exactly the way we asked him to, our lives would be hell on earth because we don't know what is right and he does. God knows, and we don't. Then he says in the next, the next uh, phrase, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. That is a paraphrase from Job 41.11. Anybody know the story of Job? Anybody? Yeah. Not the happiest story in the Bible, at least for about 40 chapters. Starts with this very righteous man who's very successful in every way, and suddenly, in a heartbeat with no explanation, everything is gone. His health, his family, his, his finances, he's lost everything. He's sitting in a pile of ashes, scratching his sores, and crying out to God for 30 chapters, saying, God, please, come explain why this has happened to me. Meanwhile, his three friends sit there and say, well, you know, Job, obviously you're a sinner and you need to repent because this is why the bad things have happened to you because you've done something awful. And the surprise about Job is that God does show up, but he doesn't explain anything to Job. He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't say, let me tell you why this happened to you. Instead, he interrogates Job. He says, where were you when I made the world? Where are you when something needs to happen in this world? Do you understand how hard my job is? Do you know why I do the things that I do? Of course you don't. 
And then in chapter 41, verse 11, that, that Paul is quoting here or paraphrasing, God essentially says to Job, listen, you act like I owe you something. I owe you nothing. Everything you have is from me, and I give it to you because I love you. I give it to you because it's what's right for you, but I do not owe you anything. If I owed you anything, I would give it to you. And that's hard for us, but we have to admit that we have a sense of entitlement toward God instead of the gratitude that we should have. Again, think about your friend and the surgeon. After that appointment, after he'd made an absolute fool of himself, you would say to him, don't you understand how privileged you are that she even took time with all the different patients she has, with everybody clamoring to get in to see her for help? Shouldn't you be grateful for what I did, for what she's done, for, for the opportunity to be rescued? We have this sense of entitlement as if God should wait on us when the truth is everything we have comes from Him. And that brings us to the, to the last of this, the, the end of the doxology, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's talking about how big God is and how hard it is for us to grasp God. In fact, it's impossible. C.S. Lewis in one of his books says that, that us talking about God, we need to realize is something like two shellfish talking about humans. You know, picture two oysters down in Galveston Bay, and, and, and one of them says to the other, what are people like? And the other one says, ah, they're not so different from us. They just don't have shells, and they, they live in the air. No, there's a lot more to being human, isn't there? In the same way, we know some things about God because He's told us Himself in His Word. But there's so much more that we don't know. And it would do us a whole lot of good if we as Christians, and especially me as a pastor and any of you who are called to teach the Word of God, if we were humble enough and wise enough to just stick to the things we know because they're in His book, and all the rest just admit, well, you know, this is what I think, but it's just my opinion. The truth is what He tells me in His book. But what does He say in His book? He says, for from Him are all things. From Him are all things. That means everything that was created, everything that exists, came because He made it. That includes you and me. And think about how big we're talking about. Think about how big creation is. Let's talk about if you took the universe and you shrunk it down so small that the sun was the size of a beach ball. And you put that beach ball right here on the floor. You would have to walk 76 steps away. I'm sorry, 83 steps away, put down a, a sunflower seed, and that would be Mercury. That would be the closest planet to the sun. Walk uh, another 60 steps, put down a BB, and that's Venus. Another 78 steps, put down a P, that's Earth, that's us. Keep walking, you put down a red pinhead for Mars, an orange for Jupiter, a golf ball with some rubber bands around it. Yeah, that's Saturn. Uh, you, you put down a marble for Uranus, a cherry for Neptune. At this point, you're standing two and a half miles away from the beach ball and you still haven't gotten to Pluto yet. That's the solar system. That's five miles across. So if you said, okay, I've got this other beach ball, where do I put it if it signifies the next closest star? Well, you'd have to keep walking south. Keep walking south all the way to the, you know, to the Rio Grande, cross the Rio Grande, into Central America, down into South America. Keep walking 6,720 miles. You're in Tierra del Fuego, off the southern tip of South America. And then you still need a boat to take you a little bit further. And you put your beach ball in the water. Okay, that's the closest star. And there's billions more stars in the universe. And God made all of that. 
And not only that, but he made all the complexity of life on this earth, all the different plants and animals, seen and unseen, and and all the people who've ever lived. There's 8 billion people on earth today, not even to mention the people who've lived and died ahead of us. And think about the fact that you and I are completely unique in human history. There's never been anybody exactly like us. God did all that. From Him are all things. And, And you think about that and then think, do I really want Him to listen to me? Do I really want Him to follow my advice? To do what I say? Or is it better if I listen to Him instead? From Him are all things, then through Him are all things. Now I have to admit, I don't know, this could be one of two things that He's saying here. He could be saying, God made everything out of nothing, which He did. There's this old joke about this group of skeptics who go to God and they say, listen, God, uh, with all due respect, we don't think you made a very good world. And today with our, with our modern knowledge and technology and know-how, we believe we could make a better universe than you did. And God says, okay, well, just to establish credibility, why don't you start by making one human out of dirt, just like I did. They say, well, I think that's not going to be a problem. It might take us a while to figure out how, but, but we'll get it done. And they be, bend over and start scooping up some dirt. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You get your own dirt. God made everything out of nothing. But I think it could also mean that God sustains everything. This is a verse we're going to talk about next week at a little more detail. Colossians 1.17 says, Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, I don't think that means that Jesus is sitting at a switchboard in heaven, and every time the wind blows, or the rain falls, or the sun rises or sets, it's because Jesus had to twist a knob, or pull a lever, or push a button. But I do believe, I do believe that God is the sustaining force of the universe, and that if God somehow decided, I'm done with this, we'd fall apart. I do know this. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. This is why we give thanks. Today, when you leave this service and you go and you eat lunch, if it's good and you take joy in it, that's a gift from God. You may say, well, but the, the person down at X restaurant made that. Well, yeah, we'll give them some credit too. But who gave them their hands? Who gave them their abilities? It's a gift from God. Every time you experience pleasure, every time you experience comfort, every time you experience relief, every time you experience joy and love, it is a gift from God. He is the Father of lights. He is the one who loves you enough to give you all good things. And then finally, to Him are all things. This is the hardest one for us to understand because we're so used to seeing everything through very self-centered terms. I've got another old joke for you. I love this one. Uh, I don't know if there will be cats in heaven, but if there are, they will be very surprised that they're not the ones being worshipped. If you own a cat, you know what I mean. But we're not so different. We see the world entirely in a self-centered way. We think that everything that happens around us, all all that matters is how it impacts us. It's almost like we think we're the characters of our own novel. We're the main characters of our own movie. And then we get to heaven, the end of this life, and we find out, no, we're not. See, Scripture says everybody's story ends the same way. Everybody's story ends the same way. No matter how you live, your story ends the same as everybody else, and that is kneeling before the foot of the throne. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
In the end, you find out it was really his story, and you were a character in it. I even believe that the blessings we get from God, in the end, they're not so much about us, they're about him. When, when God changed my life plans, my career path uh, 30 years ago, it wasn't just to make me happy, although it did make me much happier. I, I am convinced I'm much happier than if I'd done my own thing. But that wasn't the whole purpose of it. It was to put me in position to be useful to his plan of redemption. And that's going to be the same with you. Although many of you aren't called to vocational ministry, God's direction in your life isn't just so that you'll have a better life. It's so that you'll be a part of his plan of, of making this world a better place, bringing people to salvation, redeeming the world in the name of Jesus Christ. And we'll all see in the end that he's the main character. In fact, that's what heaven's about. And this is, this is going to be something you'll have to wrestle with because we tend to talk about heaven in very earthly-centered terms. I hope I've got a big mansion. I hope I drive a nice car. I hope I get to do my favorite hobby, whatever that is. I hope I'm taller. I hope I'm thinner. I hope I have better hair. I hope I have straighter teeth. And I think we're going to get there and realize none of that really matters. Now, those things will exist. We'll have actual bodies. We'll do actual things. We'll live in actual houses. But I don't think we'll care anymore when we see his face and we'll realize, oh, this is the reason I'm here. It's sort of like if you, if, I was, when you came to, if you came to me when I was four years old and you said, you know, someday when you're about 19, you're going to meet somebody, you're going to fall in love, and you're going to get married when you're 21, you're going to have these two kids. And I would say, okay, but can I bring my uh, toys? You know, I've got, got my little Han Solo, I'm a little Luke Skywalker, can I bring them with me? Well, I, yeah, I guess. But the truth is, on my wedding day, when we got in that car and we drove away and people were throwing rice at us, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker weren't there, right? When Carrie was giving birth to our firstborn child, Barbie wasn't in the room because those things didn't matter anymore. I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven. And we stand in the presence of God and we're going to realize, oh, okay, now I guess it doesn't really matter whether there's golf. I guess it doesn't matter whether I'm going to eat steak or chicken. I guess it really doesn't matter because this is it. This is the reason I'm here. This is the source of all happiness. And he is more than enough.